Voices of Children. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Monica Barolin. I'm the CEO of Mother Jones. And a special, a special thanks to the Club's Humanities Forum for hosting today's conversation. With me today is Mark Fullman, the National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones, my colleague and the author of a brand new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. We'll tell you all about the book uh, in a minute, um, but I would like to remind our audience that um, you can be part of this conversation as well. If you're watching us on YouTube, please um, share any questions that you would like us to address in the text chat. This is one of the few times when an internet comment section is a good thing. And we'll make sure to get to some of your questions um, as we go through the program. Mark, it's so lovely to see you. Likewise. Um, I think I've seen you in person three times in the last two years, and two have been within the past week. Yeah. Um, so this is a good sign. For sure. And I'm so excited about this book, um, not only because it's a reporting tour de force um, that has taken a lot of your time in the last 10 years, um, but also because it brings um, hope and perspective to something that's a really grim subject. And we have a lot of grim topics out there right now, but not mm. as much hope and perspective. So um, I'm really excited about taking our audience on the journey of discovery that you've undertaken here. And... Um, Maybe to start the journey, um, because it really is, this is a book about policy, it's about science, it's about characters, it's a really gripping narrative, and it um, shows us a discipline called behavioral threat assessment that is that aims to prevent um, mass shootings and given, you know, and sort of comes out of the fact that we have a horrifying epidemic of mass shootings in America and that the debate about the role that um, the prevalence of guns in our society plays is pretty much paralyzed and stuck. Um, and so behavioral threat assessment comes at the problem from a different end of the, um, of the challenge that, that we confront in solving this. And so to start us out, I wanted to go back to the very beginning, um, which we both happen to be present for. Um, we were both working as we are now at Mother Jones, which is a nonprofit reader supported investigative newsroom. And as journalists do, we were in our morning news meeting um, processing the big stories of the day and trying to figure out how our journalism might bring some context and perspective that wasn't fully understood. And this meeting uh, was on July 20th, 2012, so almost exactly 20 or 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the night before, a man walked into a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, and opened fire during a showing of Batman, The Dark Knight. And I remember we were talking about there had just been a mass shooting here in the Bay Area a few months before. There had been another one earlier that year. And we talked about, does it not seem as if this is becoming more common? Um, and we thought, surely there's somebody out there researching this, keeping track of it, who can tell us the answer. And so you volunteered to figure that out. 
what happened next. Right. Well, and, and this was shortly after I had begun working at Mother Jones. And one of the first things I did, you may or may not recall, was a piece that we had about gun regulations. And so I had written about gun violence in, in the past, but ha that had been my initial focus coming into the newsroom as well. And waking up to that news from Aurora was just really shocking. As you say, there were some prior events before that, and this this was not a new problem then, of course. Um, the previous year was the uh, mass shooting in, in Tucson, Arizona, that involved Congress then-Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And so, right, we were all asking this question, you know, what is this all about? It, I think it's a little bit difficult for people to remember this now about that event, but at the time, it was really unprecedented. This had never happened in a movie theater, and the number of victims was quite shocking. There were 70 people shot in that attack. Uh, 12 died, and it was profound and traumatic. And so we wanted to know more about what, what was going on here. And that morning after our news meeting, I sat down at my desk and started looking for data on the problem. There must be a database that shows these attacks going back in time and has some different information that we can start to analyze. And I was startled to find that there was essentially nothing. There was nothing publicly available. So we decided in the newsroom that we would build it that day. And we started doing it. And the kind of horrifying part of that story is that as soon as you had built it and you had gone back um, decades, you had to start updating it because there was another mass shooting and another one. And that winter, um, there was the you know particularly shocking mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. And so That's you right. found yourself um, kind of getting deeper and deeper into this story, and you met um, Christina Anderson. So tell me about her. Sure. So, uh, right, after we built the database initially, there was uh, several more of these events in the fall, and then Sandy Hook and turned out to be a particularly awful year. It was really the beginning of a, t of a time period where this problem was escalating. And so there was growing interest. And um, as a result, and partly as a result of the work we were doing, uh, there was a, a panel discussion in San Francisco that I, I was uh, participating in at UC Hastings. And uh, there was a young woman there named Christina Anderson. And she came up afterwards and introduced herself to me um, she was a survivor of the Virginia Tech massacre that occurred in 2007. Um, at the time, the worst school massacre in American history. 32 people died. Another 27 were injured or shot. Um, just a horrific event and a real watershed event in terms of uh, this issue in the country. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit later about some of the things that came out of that particular um, attack. But Christina was, uh, she told me who she was and, and said she was interested in talking to me further about the work I was pursuing. And um, of course, once she told me who she was, I, I said, of course, I'd love to talk to you. And we sat down the next day and I think we talked for about four hours and she just had a remarkable story. She was beginning to uh, do some public speaking about her experience. And she was at the time focused on how the university had responded and, and what the recovery process was like. Um, she was, I could tell immediately she was optimistic at her core. That was really striking to me. Someone who's gone through that. I mean, she was severely wounded and I think nearly died. There were uh, 11 of her classmates died in the same room where she was shot and their teacher. So just unimaginable horror that she'd gone through. And here she was pursuing a deeper understanding of the problem. That really stood out to me. It really was very striking. And so we talked further, and she told me a little bit more about what she was doing. And it included beginning to become involved in this field called behavioral threat assessment, this work of prevention. And I learned that she was essentially telling her story at threat assessment trainings and conferences, and I had some opportunity to start seeing her do that um, and things further evolved from there in terms of my learning about what this, this prevention model was all about. Yeah, I remember you were talking at the time about how this was a way to actually prevent these shootings from happening in the first place. Um, so explain a little bit how that works. And maybe you can tell us about Brandon, um, because that's a really amazing story in the book. 
Sure. So threat assessment is is a, a community-based violence prevention method, and it brings together collaborative expertise in mental health and law enforcement uh, and works with other community leaders depending on the setting. So in a school system or a university, you also have administrators involved, school psychologists, counselors, people who are looking out for the safety and well-being of students as well as their educational experience. Um, and the way that the process works essentially is when there's a person of concern that comes to the attention of a team, they're looking into that person's circumstances and trying to understand better what the issue is and whether or not that person poses a danger, whether they're thinking about planning violence and then making a plan to intervene and try to help that person and move them away from that idea. So that's essentially how it works. And in this particular case um, of this kid, how did that, um, how did the kid come to their attention and what did they do specifically to intervene? So a, a significant par- portion of the book is set in the city of Salem in Oregon, um, where I went to immerse in a threat assessment program in a K through 12 public school district. Um, the Salem Kaiser system was uh, built shortly after Columbine in 1999. And they're one of the kind of leading models today for how this is done. And I was able to go there for the better during the better part of 2019 and observe them working cases and look at case files and talk to the practitioners and the leaders of this work. And there were several cases that were quite interesting to observe up close. Uh, I felt that it was really important to do do this for the book, to show readers what this actually looks like in in action, how, how this process works. You can explain it and describe the concept, but until you see it, I think it's in some ways hard to understand. And so I sat in on their case evaluation meetings, and did a lot of interviewing with them. And one of the cases that really stood out that I, I write about in detail in the book is was a high school junior who I call Brandon. It's not his real name. Um, the subject case subject's identities needed to be protected. Um, but Brandon was a kid who was causing some real anxiety in, in his peers, uh, primarily through some threatening comments he was making said one day at a bus stop to another student, uh, don't come to school on Friday. I'm going to come back here with my dad's gun and shoot up the school. And other students overheard this, and and one reported it to a faculty member. And then it came to the attention of the team. So during the case review, the um, lead school psychologist, a woman by the name of Courtney McCarthy, who was heading the team there, reviews the case and what they know about Brandon's situation. And it turns out there's a lot more to what's going on with him. Um, He'd been on their radar before. He had kind of a history of making comments about school shootings that, you know, sort of raised eyebrows and caught people's attention. Um, And so they're asking questions about what else is going on with him that might indicate that he's serious about this or that he's perhaps planning for it. Um, Does he have access to a gun. He had also said to another student that he had gotten a hold of the code to his father's gun safe at home, and that's how he was going to get the gun. So the team's gathering all of this information as quickly as they can. One of the first things they need to determine is, does he have a gun? Um, so an SRO, a school resource officer serving on the team, goes out to his home the same day and uh, interviews him and his, his mom and determines that he does not, in fact, have access to a weapon. So that was good in terms of any imminent danger. Then the question becomes, how do we manage this situation? Um, what, are, what is the potential that it's going to worsen? What could worsen it? What may cause him to go further down what the field calls a pathway to violence? Um, it's a process of escalation that is marked with lots of behavioral warning signs that these experts are looking at. And they develop a plan to intervene um, through constructive measures, which the field has learned through research and practice over the years is the most effective way in most cases to resolve the problem, to try to help someone, especially in in a youth setting, especially in a school. Um, 
so they use what they call a wraparound strategy. They extend them a lot of close personal support through counseling, educational support, uh, working in this case with the family that was somewhat cooperative, which is good because in some cases that's not the situation. Uh, we just saw this recently with Oxford High School in Michigan. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, where you have a very different, starkly different picture of, of how the parents were involved in the case. Um, so through these steps and, and these measures over time, and I was able to follow the case over months to see how it was developing and to see the way that they were continuing to monitor and evaluate and adjust their plans. They were able to successfully steer Brandon onto a better path. And he returned to high school the following uh, year as a senior and did pretty well and went on to graduate. So um, by the measure of what they did to manage him in high school, it was a success story using this method. You and I are both parents and, you know, it's, it's really kind of grim that we find ourselves thinking about, you know, does our school, does our kid's school have um, behavioral threat assessment in place? Um, but it has become such a normal thing for kids that this is part, and this is a book about mass shootings, not school shootings, but right. school shootings are the ones that I think um, have really emotionally captured um are thinking because it is um, so terrifying that, you know, little kids know how to hide under desks, older kids, um, you know, speculate about um, who might or might not be a threat to them. So how widespread is this approach and this work in schools? How, how many school districts, how many schools have this in place? It's a good question. And it's a question without a clear answer. Um, I've asked that question a lot along the way as I was working on the book. And what's interesting about this field is that it's developed in a very decentralized way. Um, a lot of these programs are built at the community level. There are some national efforts, too, that we'll talk about. Um, but when I've talked to leaders in this field and asked the question, there isn't really a standardized or a codified system that they have to even know how much this is going on. Um, it has grown, and especially in, in recent years, um, what happens is, is after there's a major traumatic attack, and foremost with school shootings, then there's a surge of interest in this, in this work. It happened after Columbine, it happens again after Sandy Hook, and again after Parkland. And especially after Parkland, where I think there's been a, a broader growing awareness in the country about this approach, um, it has spread more. And there are actually now a handful of states that require threat assessment programs in their public school systems. I think it's up to about nine now. There's some states that are toying with legislation. Um, North Carolina has a state uh, program that's based in, in a state law enforcement agency, but it's not mandated in schools. So there's this, this somewhat um, mix and match kind of approach going on nationally. Uh, both Florida and Texas now require this in their public schools. And that's no coincidence. Parkland in Florida and um, a, a horrific big school shooting that happened three months later in Texas uh, at Santa Fe High School, which is a little bit eclipsed, I think, in people's minds, um, thinking back on these big cases. Uh, but the, the policy tends to follow across the map where these happen. Wow. So I want to just get something out of the way for our audience, um, because I'm sure a lot of people listening and watching will be thinking, why aren't you talking about the guns? Why are you talking about people? Um, you know, and there is, you know, sort of this very shop worn adage that guns don't kill people. People do. That's not what you were focused on in this book, right? It, that there is a, an intense conversation in America about the role that guns play in our society, the prevalence of them, the ease of access to them. Um, but you wanted to tell, and there are probably 99 conversations about that tonight somewhere. Right. And this is the one that happens to be about another aspect of this issue. Yeah. Why did you want to do that? There are also 99 books about it too. Um, so yeah, I, we were deep in this subject beginning back in 2012, as we were discussing. And I, like I think many other people in our country, 
grew frustrated with the sort of stuck, paralyzed, entrenched political debates that we have about gun regulations. It's a very important debate. And uh, there has been a lot of things that have changed with it, not at the federal level. There's this sort of this cliche, nothing ever happens. And, and that's true if you look at Congress, but it's actually totally wrong if you look at the state and local level. There's been all kinds of changes in the past decade with gun laws. Um, in a basic sense, the problem is they go in both directions. So we have this real patchwork society of regulation for firearms. Some states have very strict laws, like here in California, um, and some are very loose about regulating guns. So I didn't want to focus on that because, you know, years ago, I had the feeling that there had to be other ways to look at this problem. There had to be more we could do to try to figure it out and solve it. And when I learned about behavioral threat assessment, started digging into it, it was very exciting because I realized that that's what this was. This was a, a very different way to look at the problem that kind of got past all of that political noise that we're very familiar with, um, that I think in many w ways is, is a nonpartisan way of thinking about the problem. It's, it's pragmatic. Um, it, it meets the reality of the problem where it is. We're a society that has many, many guns and will continue to. We have nearly 400 million firearms in this country now. That won't change broadly anytime soon. So therefore, what else can we do to grapple with this problem? And as I say at the outset of the book, um, you know, I believe like the majority of Americans that we need more effective gun laws. That's an important issue, but that the book that I was going to write was not going to be about that, that I wanted to go beyond that and look at this from a human behavioral perspective, because I think there is a lot of uh, possibility in this approach. So let's talk about that, because there really is so much amazing behavioral science in this book. Um, and maybe you can take us back to the very beginning of how this discipline emerged um, and what it came out of. Yeah, so this was this was really exciting for me, and I, I loved writing this aspect of the book. There was a lot of discovery for me in doing it, um, looking at how this field began. Um, and there were some very surprising things about it. So it dates back about four decades, and it begins really with a, a collaborative effort between mental health specialists and forensic psychology and law enforcement, in this case, the United States Secret Service. Um, in the early 1980s, the Secret Service had become intensely focused on trying to figure out how to do a better job of perhaps predicting who would try to assassinate the president and other high-profile public figures and political figures that it was trying to protect. And people forget how much, what an extraordinary degree of political violence there was That's in right. the 70s in particular. That's right, coming out of the 60s and 70s with assassinations of major political figures. Um, and so there were some forensic psychologists and psychiatrists in the Boston area who were focused on this and do, uh, starting to look into these questions in a state mental health institution in Massachusetts. And uh, a forensic psychologist by the name of Robert Fine, who I, whose story I tell in, early in the book, uh, his mentor, uh, a, a psychiatrist by the name of Sherv, Sherbert Frazier, who was... Um, basically one of the foremost experts on violence and violent crime in, in the mental health field in that era, um, had told him when he was leaving uh, his studies at Harvard, um, I think you should go work with dangerous men, uh, was what he said to him. And, and Robert Fine was, was kind of floored by this. It wasn't even on his radar. And um, he was essentially saying, go to Bridgewater, the mental health, state mental health hospital for, at the time was called this, for the criminally insane and spend time with these incarcerated, essentially incarcerated people. I mean, they called it a hospital, but it was a, pr a prison, a maximum security prison um, for people who were considered the most psychotic and dangerous and violent men in the state of Massachusetts. And what his mentor told him was by going and spending time with these people, you will develop an insight into them and a moral authority about them that you can't get any other way. And so that's what Fine went and did. He started for years investigating in the context of the hospital with his colleagues in mental health and social workers. What is it that brought these people here? Um, and around this time, the Secret Service was also developing this deeper concern. And 
the two streams converged in a collaboration to try to figure out uh, more effectively who is threatening to attack political figures and the president. Uh, there were men in that institution who had done that. And so part of the question was, how can we study this and talk to them and try to understand their mindset and look at the behaviors and circumstances that led up to their assassin assassination attempts and learn from that? And so they began pursuing that. Um, around the same time, was, it was, this is was around 1980 when this is getting going, and John Lennon is murdered in New York. And right at that time is when the experts at Bridgewater and the Secret Service were talking about pursuing this collaboration. And so there was the recognition that this is also that problem, celebrity stalking. And um, there were some other similar things going on in different parts of the country. I just found this very fascinating that this was sort of developing independently in some ways. Out in Los Angeles, there was a big celebrity stalking problem in the 1980s. Uh, kind of culminating with a high-profile murder of a young actor named Rebecca Schaefer in 1989. A stalker showed up at her door and shot her to death. And this was shocking to the country. People of a certain age will remember this. And Hollywood was up in arms, and people started asking the question, why do we have to wait for this to happen? This is a person who you could see was dangerous for a long time. Why can't we be more proactive? So the LAPD starts working on this developing what it called its threat management unit, developing principles of threat assessment work. And so seeing how that all was sort of bubbling up and then starting to come together as, as a discipline through research and through um, work in the field was just really fascinating uh, for me, especially the way that you know, these kind of large cultural and political forces were kind of feeding into it and what was happening in the country. So as you can see, um, I've already gotten some questions from yeah. the audience. So mm -hmm. people are doing what we ask them to do and um, typing any questions into the text chat um, on the YouTube live stream. And one of them um, is really pertinent to this, which is, um, and it, it also is really pertinent to one of the really breakthrough insights from your data work on this at Mother Jones, that the frequency of these attacks really has increased um, in this past decade. And um, the questioner wants to know how much energy has been spent figuring out why. Why is this happening so frequently and why is it happening so frequently in this culture? Yeah, it's, it's a big question and a very complex one. Um, what are the cultural and perhaps political forces that are working on this? And also the ways in which we um, process our own culture and our own media. The, the digital media age has changed this problem a lot, too. I write about that quite a bit in the book, um, how social media and the spread of information um, really affects some of these cases. And I think that speaks in some ways to the escalation of the problem. Um, one of the issues is that the people who, in, in many cases, who think about committing an attack like this have come to believe that it is a valid idea, that it is a valid solution to their problems, to their suffering or rage or despair. And I think that idea has been reinforced in some ways by our media and the ways that we think about and talk about this problem. And one of the things that I try to really do with the book is to demystify who mass shooters are because we tend to regard them as these insane monsters who just snap, right? That's the phrase that everyone repeats over and over. And the question that's asked after the, the big attack is what made the guy snap as if this is an impulsive crime. Uh, someone just goes nuts and then goes out and commits a mass shooting. But that's just not true. That's not what happens in any of these cases. These are all, if you look at the case evidence, these are all planned crimes. These are planned acts of violence, and they're planned and thought out over days, weeks, months of time. And, and therein lies the hope of this work and this field when they recognize that, that this is, there is a process that leads up to these attacks. And there are signs, there are warning signs we can detect along the way. If we can understand that better, then we can get in the way of it before it happens. That's a really interesting perspective. And um, one of um, our viewers asked a kind of pertinent question to that, which um, I'll try to encapsulate as, you know, can you learn anything from this discipline about who is going to do this? You know, can you 
for example, they ask, you know, um, why are most of these perpetrators male? Can you sort of filter the population and say, okay, males are more prevalent, are, are more likely to do this. Men in a certain age group are more likely to do this. Um, is, is that part of what this is about? In short, the answer is no. Um, this is not a method of prediction. And what experts in the field have learned about this over the years is that prediction is impossible. Because, and it's not for lack of trying, trying to study this to the point that we could somehow identify through demographics or characteristics who might do this. The problem is, as I explained early in the book, that all of these sort of boxes we can check about mass shooters, they're just far too broad based. So if you're talking about males, well, you're talking about just under half the population. If you're talking about white males, countless people who are interested in guns, who might play violent video games who are angry or struggling with mental health issues, um, issues at work or in school or in relationships. There are many, many, many people who have these problems who would never dream of committing a mass shooting. Um, so there is no predictive profile. That's another one of the big myths about this that I think uh, is widely misunderstood about the problem. Instead, the field is focused on prevention. And if there's anything that the field of work is profiling, it's the behavioral process itself. It's not the people, it's what the people are doing. And the way that I describe, another way that I describe this in the book is to say that in a certain sense, what's more important about understanding a mass shooting is how the perpetrator got to the point of doing it, to the point of attacking, not why. Mm. The how is what really matters because sometimes in many cases, the, the question why is very difficult to answer. Motive is very complicated to try to untangle in, in a lot of these cases. And I think in some of them, it's just unknowable. Um, and meanwhile, we have a, a media culture and I think a culture generally and politically that wants a simple explanation. And that's that's a natural human instinct, right? To try to understand something so horrific, you want a clean, clear explanation. What is it that caused this? Um, so we, we, we then tend to fall into very simplified explanations. Oh, this is all about mental illness. Oh, this is all about, um, left-wing or right-wing ideology. Oh, this is all about being an angry male. Um, those are all factors that play into these cases, but none of them are defining in a way that is useful to preventing <coughs> these crimes, let alone predicting them. That's fascinating. So that's, um, makes me think of a portion, <laughs> excuse me, of a portion of the book um, <clears throat> that you call the mind hunters um, or the new mind hunters, where you end up spending a lot of time at FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia, um, which is an experience that not a lot of people have had um, talking with these um, FBI specialists, looking at um, how do people's behaviors tell us um, about their mental state and what they're going to do. Um, tell me a little more about that. Yeah, so this this actually takes us back to the Virginia Tech story in 2007, because after that watershed event, the, um, the then president, George W. Bush, his White House, uh, asked several agencies within the federal government to look into the problem of mass violence on uh, college and university campuses. Essentially, you know, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to figure out what happened here and, and prevent it from happening again? And so um, that resulted in uh, a, a very stepped up effort at the FBI, which historically had done threat assessment work. But this was kind of opening a new chapter um, where the FBI then um, was going to collaborate with the Department of Education and dig into data on violence on college campuses of all kinds. So they did a, kind of an overview survey of uh, 200 plus cases um, going back uh, quite a few years to, to gather data and look at as what they could about, you know, the circumstances and, and so on and so forth to try to understand better what the risks were. And the, the leaders in, in this, of this team at the, within the behavioral analysis unit, which is um, kind of a storied um, 
part of the, the, the agency. It's well known to the public through its history of tracking serial killers, um, became kind of a, a, a big sort of um, pop cultural phenomenon decades ago with, with uh, Silence of the Lambs and, and then more recently Mindhunter. And so that's why I landed on this title for the chapter of the new Mindhunters, because uh, what these specialists were doing was uh, kind of an evolution of that work, uh, kind of building off that legacy, but also different. Um, that serial killer work was about profiling unknown criminals who had committed these horrific killings and using the crime scene to try to understand who they were and then go track them down. Um, but this, this work that, that kind of grew out of that in some ways was, again, about profiling the behavioral process. That's the work of behavioral threat assessment, doing deep research, try to understand mass shooters. And so going out and investigating cases as they were happening um, and trying to learn from them. And this started in the late 2010s after Virginia Tech. They built um, a unit there called the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center. And I spent a lot of time getting to know one of the leaders, uh, a, an agent named uh, Andre Simmons, who's since retired, but led, led that team for a number of years, um, had a background in mental health, which I don't think is coincidental, um, and crisis intervention policing. Um, it's one of the m most fascinating things about this work to me is the way that it marries mental health expertise and law enforcement expertise. There's a synergy there that really helps to understand the problem better and to, to act upon it and try to get in the way and prevent attacks. So that team, the FBI, went on to do a lot of significant research into the mental health factors in these cases and looking at active shooters and really continuing to further develop the, the research in the field. So what kinds of things did they find out? Well, one thing that was really striking that, uh, to me that came out in a study just a few years ago of active shooters was that the majority of them did not have clinically diagnosable mental illness. And this is something that the field has known for quite a while through research, but this really put an emphasis on it and deepened it in some ways through the specific case studies. I think it's 60-plus cases they looked at over a decade-plus of active shooters in the 2000s. And this is another one of our big myths about mass shooters, that they're all crazy, insane, mentally ill. I mean, it dovetails very closely with the snapping idea. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the public tends to think of that as, okay, these are people who are completely detached from reality, um, hearing voices, telling them to go kill or, or whatever, things that we might associate with conditions like paranoid schizophrenia. Um, that's simply not the case in, in the vast majority of these cases. And even in the small percentage of cases where mental illness is significant and diagnosable, it's rarely a primary cause in terms of the how and the why questions. What led this person down this path um, when you take a deep look at these cases? And so I think that's really important because blaming this all on mental illness, which happens every time we have one of these cases, that's part of the national discussion, is wrong. And it's counterproductive to understanding what's going on here. And it's damaging. It's damaging to people who do suffer from those conditions, who the vast majority of whom are not violent. There's extensive research showing that, that those afflictions are not predictive of violence or even correlated with violence in any meaningful way. Um, so this is this kind of research at the FBI and elsewhere, I think, is, has really advanced understanding of the problem in some significant ways. That's really counterintuitive in some ways. It is you sort of assume that somebody can't be well who does something like this. And it also, like you said, you know, so often the policy debate focuses on, well, let's make sure people with mental illnesses don't have access to guns. But maybe you would have more of an impact if you removed access to guns for people who are well. Um, well, it's, it's important to acknowledge that a mass shooter, by definition, is not someone who is mentally healthy, yeah. obviously. I mean, these are people with serious problems. But the distinction in sort of the lay description of mental illness and the clinical diagnosis of mental illness is important here um, because the people doing this, their problems by and large are personal and, and um, you know, deep grievances and rage and, and depression, mental, mental health issues that are serious. There's a lot of suicidality in these cases. That's very important. It was one of our early discoveries with the database at Mother Jones was that the majority of mass shooters are suicidal. So um, 
obviously mental health is very significant in this equation, but we need to distinguish that from crazy, what we call crazy, because then we're identifying these people as unrelatable and unsolvable. And that is antithetical to the the work of this field. And, And I think that's really important. So it is counterintuitive, as you say. I mean, it's also counterintuitive, frankly, that you have FBI agents and law enforcement people doing this work, right? I mean, historically, law enforcement is about investigating crime and helping prosecute crime, not preventing crime. So when I first learned about this work in the context of law enforcement, and particularly at the FBI, I was kind of wowed by that. You know, really, they're, they're FBI specialists who are focused on mental health interventions, um, but there are, and there there's some extraordinary people doing this work. I mean, I'm sure it is... Um, that's going to be another counterintuitive piece for many people listening to this, that, um, you know, we are to take um, agencies like the FBI and local law enforcement, who many people have trouble finding a lot of trust in. um, We have to trust them to um, be thoughtful and empathetic, essentially, about um, what is going on here. For sure. And I think in some ways the bar is quite high for that, especially now in an era where uh, trust in law enforcement has been called into question in some big ways again. And and, and um, I think f- for some very, very serious reasons. And so you're asking a lot to ask communities to trust that this method will be used effectively and fairly. Um, with constructive interests in mind. But I know from the years of work that I put into researching and writing this book that when this model is used well and effectively, it's, it's quite remarkable in what it can accomplish. I think, you know, people often ask the question too, well, how many mass shootings have been stopped with this? And it's a tricky question to answer in terms of results. And I was asking that question of many people in the field for a long time, um, you know, I, I think it, what's so difficult about it is that you're you're proving a negative. Um, success in a threat assessment case is the absence of an outcome, of a violent outcome, uh, the absence of evidence in that sense. That's also why we never hear about this. It, it's not news when nothing happens. And so um, in that sense, it's hard to show the results of this work. But in having gone in and watched teams work and looked at many cases, I became persuaded that there are there have been many cases throughout the country that have been stopped dozens, possibly even hundreds of these kinds of attacks where you're talking about individuals who were developing a violent idea, were making plans, were taking steps to prepare, uh, in some cases had access to weapons. Um, Can you prove that that person was going to commit violence if they don't ever commit violence? That's an interesting question, right? Um, but when you look at the details of these cases and talk to the people who've worked them and worked many cases like them, it, it is quite compelling that that the results would have been something, some sort of violent attack had there not been this type of, of prevention work getting in the way of it. That makes me really curious about um, the relationship between the behavior that leads to violence and the different motivations that we've seen in these attacks. You know, you are tracing some of the history of, you know, kind of obsession with celebrities in the 80s. There have been um, racially motivated mass shootings, Mm -hmm. um, ideologically motivated mass shootings. We see at the moment kind of a rise in political violence um, and politically violent rhetoric, um, um, you know, misogynist rhetoric has been um, a factor in some of these. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are many different motivations, but it seems like these practitioners are a little bit content agnostic and are saying, regardless of what you're thinking, some of the actions that you're taking may enable us to intervene. Is that Yeah, I understand the the point you're making. I wouldn't say it quite like that because I think that those factors are very meaningful. I I think the better way to describe it is that the field also has to be adaptive to the way that uh, cases evolve. And each case is really handled 
as a unique situation. It's specific to the, the person and the circumstances and the behaviors. Within that, there are many recognizable warning signs and behaviors that become matters of concern. So it's not that political ideology or domestic violence or misogyny aren't relevant as content. They're, they're highly relevant. It's more that you're looking always at a holistic picture with this approach to gauge the level of danger and to figure out the best ways to intervene. Um, and I think that in my study of cases, both actual attacks that have happened and threat cases that I've been able to gain access to, you can see the way that the problem changes and evolves. And so in more recent years, and that's, that's twofold, it's the way that the world's changing, and then it's also the deepening research and the further learning about the nature of the problem. Some of my own work in, in, in that that I've done with, with Mother Jones is to look at the role of what's now called in, in some uh, settings toxic masculinity, which refers to domestic violence and the so-called incel ideology. This is a rising problem. Um, I documented a, quite a number of cases um, in recent years where that was in the mix very explicitly. Um, so that's very significant to the field and, and uh, the field adapts to um, those changing factors, political extreme, extremism as well. Um, I, I've, I've talked to a number of leaders in the field who have become very focused on that in recent years because of what's happening with, with uh, political violence in our country, the escalation of that. And we've seen that with mass shootings, the, the Tree of Life mass shooting in Pittsburgh, the synagogue there a few years ago, motivated by far-right, violent, extreme ideology. There's more of that in the mix now, and that's, that's an important um, recognition that's going on in this work. Let's talk a little bit about access um, to guns. Um, one, sure. of our, um, one of our questioners asks, and reminder, you can still ask questions in um, the YouTube text chat, so feel free um, to share yours. But um, one of our viewers or listeners asks um, whether the availability of military-style assault weapons um, is a significant factor um, in the prevalence and lethality and, you know, asks, is there a reason to allow the selling of these, which is not exactly our topic tonight, but I am curious how the field looks at, um, access to lethal weapons. Yeah. As you say, the discussion about types of weapons and their availability is, is really a different discussion than the focus of the book, but it's one that we're very familiar with and that I've also covered in, in my related work. Um, and I, there's a lot that, that can be said about that that's available in, in, um, in the media and in research. Um, I think as it pertains to, to this method and this field of work and trying to grapple with the problem, you know, it's interesting when I observed threat assessment professionals in, in a variety of settings over the years, I noticed that there's very little discussion of gun policy. Um, it's not that they won't talk about it or, or guns availability or regulation. It's not that, that they won't talk about it. It's more that I think the, the approach is, is grappling with the reality of the problem, which the guns are everywhere. I have, I, I quote one leader in the field early in the book who says, you know, when we're working threat cases, we just assume everyone has a gun because it's safer to assume that than to not assume that. That's, to me, that was sort of a remarkable um, distillation of the reality that, that threat assessment's dealing with because um, they need to find out in many cases if, if that's the situation. Um, but, you know, in a basic sense, sure, the, the availability of those kinds of firearms is going to complicate the problem and complicate this work. Someone also asks us, um, which is um, perhaps slightly related, um, whether these shootings are more likely to happen in red states or blue states, i.e. states that have a lot of gun regulation versus ones that don't. Um, do you know if there's any correlation that the field has identified? I'm not aware of one, and um, I, I can't answer that scientifically because I haven't studied it in that way, but I can say anecdotally and perhaps empirically that the answer is no. I mean, these happen everywhere. If you look at our database that we built at Mother Jones and um, you know, expanded over and over and over again over the past decade, 
there are very few states in the nation that haven't been touched by this problem. And a lot of a lot of these attacks have happened in, you know, what we call blue states or states that have tighter gun regulations. So, you know, that gets back into the discussion of a very patchwork system of regulation. Um, but that's not really a meaningful way to look at this problem, in my view, um, when talking about this kind of approach to, to solving it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little more about um, the kinds of things that these experts have found that, you know, us lay people might not know. Um, one of the things I was struck by was um, that the book takes you into these unexpected settings. Like at one point you're, you know, in Disneyland, um, you know, at a conference of people researching um, mass shootings, you know, in this in this fantasy setting. What was going on there? Yeah, that's uh, I actually opened the book with this because it was it was so surreal to me the first time I went. I ended up returning a number of times to this annual training conference uh, run by a, a, a nonprofit organization called the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, um, a, a, a group for um, a membership group for people who do this work that come together and, and train and and uh, learn the work and and network as well. Uh, and they hold an annual conference in Disneyland. And um, it was so strange to, I remember the first time I walked into a, a conference room in the Disneyland hotel, I'd just been outside by like the tiki bar and the swimming pool and, and all these families are frolicking. It was in, they have, they hold this in August. So it's like the peak of summer vacation season. And, and then I walk into this darkened ballroom that's like cold because they've got the air conditioning down so that people will stay awake all day or, or maybe it's too hot outside. I don't know. Um, and, you know, looking at slides of related to mass murder and psychopathy and and, uh, you know, here are all these professionals who've come in from all over the country to sit there and do that all day for four days. Um, 20 years of workplace shootings, homicidal cyber stalking. Um, evil thoughts, wicked deeds. You know, that's what these training sessions are called. And then you walk outside again after the day's over and there's like kids with ice cream cones and um, Mickey Mouse and it's a small world playing on the speakers. And it's just a very surreal setting. Um, the reason that they hold it there has to do with the historic roots that I was describing earlier in the LAPD um, as they were building an early version of this at the, L at the LAPD, the threat management unit. They were starting to network with other law enforcement and mental health professionals. And uh, there's a strong connection in Los Angeles to the entertainment industry because of celebrity stalking issues. And that was a big focus for the threat management unit in its early years. And so as a result, they had started hosting this at Disney. And I guess they have just continued there um, ever since. Um, but as a setting to like focus on this work, it was just kind of wild. Uh, to, to see that the first time. And you wouldn't really know it if you were there. It's mm -hmm. all happening, you know, behind closed doors. So, Yeah, um, 20 years of workplace shootings. Yeah. It seems, it seems too uh, apropos in a certain way because there is this aspect of this problem that is very much about a kind of public performance that the shooter is engaged in. Um, and I'm curious how people doing this work think about the change over time from um, a kind of legacy media environment um, where the channels that everybody would learn about you would were mediated, where, you know, television um, and newspapers where journalists like us would tell the story of this horrific, horrific event to yeah. now... Um, where we have seen shooters live stream mm -hmm. the tragedy themselves. Um, how are there insights from behavioral threat assessments about threat assessment about um, how media and platforms need to think about this? Yes, absolutely contained in, in the work of the field and in the research. And this is something that I've focused on a lot with my own reporting and I do write about it some length in trigger points later in the book. Um, I think that digital media and social media has changed this problem in enormous ways and has big implications for how the media, the news media reports on and covers these events. Um, primarily what we're talking about here is what's known as this so-called copycat factor or the copycat effect. Um, this is a problem that's been around for a long time, but 
as I was getting to know the work of the uh, FBI leaders at the Behavioral Analysis Unit, I was hearing from them that they were noticing in, in the 2010s a worsening trend with this problem, um, some very unsettling uh, patterns of case details where there were quite a few perpetrators of school shootings in particular and people, uh, individuals who were threatening or plotting school shootings who were fixated on previous school shooters, um, primarily or foremost the Columbine attackers. Um, I started referring to this as the Columbine effect in my reporting and documenting these cases. Uh, by the time, and I, I started this a number of years ago, by the time I was writing the book, there were over 100 cases like that, both threat cases and actual attacks, where the perpetrators had taken inspiration from Columbine, had identified with the shooters, were dressing like them, trying to talk like them. Um, so there's something going on here that's very significant that relates to our media environment. Um, as I said, that, that problem has been around for a long time, and I document much earlier examples of it in the book. Um, the behavior is, I think, better described as emulation behavior. It's one of the areas of warning signs I describe in the book, um, identifying with, fixating on, and, and trying to uh, perhaps outdo predecessors of, of this crime. Um, but with social media, it really accelerated in some alarming ways. And I was hearing about this from FBI leaders and then finding it in the cases I was studying. And it says a lot, I think, about how we talk about and frame and cover these cases. Uh, because meanwhile, I think as many people know, the media tends to sensationalize these horrors and really focus on the attackers, splash their pictures all over the front page and show them on the screen over and over again. And the body counts. The body counts, uh, their manifestos, so-called manifestos, where they rant and, and rage, whatever they're thinking, um, often without much coherence. And... As I looked into this more and more, I realized there's kind of a unique opportunity here for us to change, certainly within the media. We don't need to do that and still deliver the reporting on this issue that is important in the public interest, which is, I mean, we do need to report on the people who do these crimes. We need to understand the context and the circumstances, and that's very much aligned with what this field of work does. Um, but... We can do that forensically and, and use an approach that's more balanced. And, and I advocate for that in the book and in, in my work for Mother Jones. I've written about this, too. Um, I arrived at a term for this that I call strategic diminishment, mm. which is the idea that while we have to focus on this to some extent, we can really shrink the frame around the perpetrators and only identify them and talk about them in ways that are, have value to the public interest, but then no more, not excessively. And also there's some steps we can take to avoid sensationalizing. They want to be seen in many cases as looking evil and dangerous, and they pose with pictures of guns on Facebook and knowing that those will get circulated widely on social media and in the news. And historically, that's been the case. Um, the research shows that many of these perpetrators are seeking sensational media attention. So by continuing to give it to them, we're exacerbating the problem. And there's good news here. This has changed a lot in recent years. I think a lot of people in the media um, have started to recognize the problem with this um, and have written about it, myself and others. And you don't see that so much anymore, even just in the past few years. Um, I think people probably recall some of the biggest mass shootings, the perpetrators from 10 years ago, but maybe not from four and five years ago because they weren't getting nearly as much spotlight, even though we're still identifying who they are and what they did and explaining the case to the public. That's also important, by the way, because of this enormous and growing issue of misinformation. Um, there are a number of cases I talk about in the book where people have been wrongly identified in the immediate aftermath as the mass shooter. It happened at Virginia Tech, um, a person was identified on Fox News as the shooter. It wasn't him. And there was some significant repercussions for that person. Boston Marathon. Boston Marathon yes. bombing. That's right. Um, there are a few others. So it's important that the, the media report on this accurately and clear-eyed, but also with an eye to this balance, to not sensationalizing this anymore. And that also goes to what I was talking about earlier with the need to really demystify this problem. Um, if we regard these people as evil monsters and give them the tabloid treatment, we're just perpetuating those myths. 
the clock is ticking down. I'm going to try to do a little bit of rapid fire yes. to get through um, our remaining audience questions. Um, one of them is um, really interesting. Um, the person asks, is the threat assessment for a mass shooting similar um, to the threat to harm yourself? And you talked about suicides a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, um, there is a very strong intersection of those risk factors. A lot of threat cases involve suicidality and many mass shootings end in suicide. So that is an important factor that threat assessment teams look at for sure. And the kinds of interventions that threat assessment teams use are also helpful to preventing suicide, no doubt. Um, this person has a question um, also about media, but from a different perspective than mm -hmm. what we were just talking about, um, the type of media that somebody consumes. Um, and they say, you know, people who, that I know who are angry, fearful, and resentful nearly always consume a certain type of media, though not all of them act out, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, is there something to that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and I do address that in the book. Uh, because I was curious about that, too. We often see evidence in cases of these attacks that the perpetrator was intensely interested in graphic violence, in firearms, in violent video games. Um, the short answer is that that is present in a lot of cases, but there's no evidence at all that it is that it, it relates to causation. That does not cause people to commit attacks. What's interesting about it is that it may correlate in some ways in, in cases with warning signs, with behavioral warning signs. In other words, a person who is not doing well broadly is also doing this. And there is some thought in the field, um, leaders in, in Salem have talked to me about this and, and elsewhere and also at the FBI, that, that some perpetrators will use violent content and violent media as a way of sort of psychologically gearing up for an attack. Uh, to rehearse, you know, a first-person shooter video game or to just get psyched up for what they're going to do. Um, so in that sense, it, it could be highly relevant as a warning sign, but there's no evidence of it as, as a factor of causation. So I thought that was a really interesting um, kind of discovery through this work uh, because, of course, violent media has been blamed for a very long time as the cause of, of these attacks, too, going all the way back to Columbine and, mm -hmm. and, and before. That's a really fascinating perspective because we forget that, you know, doing something horrific like this is very hard for a human to to do. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of a lot of things that stop us from doing that. That's right. And yet all of us are capable in a very fundamental way of something like this. So that's an interesting, I think, juxtaposition too to think about the kind of deeper behavioral science that's involved here. Yeah, I've always been really fascinated by the research about the crimes um, of Nazi Germany and the way that ordinary people are capable of monstrous things. Yeah, um, that's right. Which seems highly relevant. Um, slightly moving back to the policy arena, mm -hmm. um, this questioner wants to know how successful groups like Moms Demand have been um, in helping combat this. And I think maybe a way that it ties back into your research is are policy advocates using the insights from behavioral threat assessment to propose particular solutions? I think that has started to happen more recently. And in some ways, it may be happening without them even fully realizing it. The, there's a really um, powerful and I think effective grassroots movement um, with that organization and others, although primarily with, with Moms Demand Action, uh, to affect policy change at, at the local and state level. Um, and some of the policy ideas that they have pursued do relate to prevention. Um, I think probably the most pertinent is the, the advent of a more recent policy called red flag laws, um, which now exists in 19 states. And it's a pretty new phenomenon. And what that is quickly in a nutshell is, is a, a civil procedure to petition a court to take away a firearm from someone who's considered a threat to either themselves or other people. Um, and that can be done by family members of that person in most states where this is now uh, legislated. There, there are a few variations on it that start to bring in law enforcement with the capability to do that. And then the court can, a judge will determine if a firearm should be removed. 
you can see how that would be a very useful tool additionally in this field of work too. So I think there is an increasing synergy um, with those kinds of efforts. The clock is ticking way down. Okay. Um, I'll give you um, one more question that um, has, has that hopeful note in it. If you um, could propose one small policy fix or one small change, um, drawing on all the research you've done, um, can you think of one? Is it red flag laws everywhere? I don't know if I would say that, but I do, I do think there is promise with that tool. Um, I think it's no coincidence that it has strong bipartisan support. Uh, I think people recognize the value in it. It goes straight to that question of how do we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people that we understand to be dangerous and shouldn't have a firearm. We always have that debate after one of these attacks. Why not get in the way of it proactively, right? Um, I think that also goes to the question of scaling this method in the country. I think it has a lot of potential in my, from my perspective and all the work I've done to put into this book that we could be doing more of this work um, to great effect. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, I want to remind people of the title of the book. It's Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And as you might imagine, it's available everywhere that books are sold. Um, I would love to thank all of you who tuned in um, and participated. Um, reminder that um, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual programs like these, but also in-person programs, hopefully very soon, um, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. Thank you so much, and thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.